Welcome to the Avowed Podcast. I'm Jasmine Lilly. Well, the rad people just keep rolling in, thanks in large part to Catalyst Wedding Magazine. If you haven't taken a stroll through their website yet, I strongly encourage you to do so. You might even notice today's guest, Amber Marlowe, in your Catalyst scrolling, as she happens to be one of their trusted community ambassadors. She was also recently interviewed by Liz Susong for Woke Wednesday, which you will hear a little about in the beginning of this episode. In case you are a sensitive Sally, I am telling you now that this episode covers some pretty heavy topics. Racism, religion, intolerance, sexism, abuse, intersectionality, you know, all the fun stuff. We're ethical humanists in my house, so we we actually put in our wedding vows um, that we will always have an ethical humanist household. And what that means for me is that like, I'm concerned with making the world a better place for my fellow human being. If you have been listening to Avowed from the beginning, and you should because every episode truly stands alone and is deeply fascinating, then you've probably realized that love, weddings, and marriage form a pretty sizable umbrella under which every shade of human complexity exists. This podcast was never intended to sit delicately on the surface of these issues. So, uncomfortable though it may be to talk about, I encourage you to listen and absorb the perspectives even when they don't align with your own. Our world is begging for empathy, compassion, and understanding, and I firmly believe we are all capable of being a part of the evolution of human connection. I am proud to offer up a space in which to facilitate these conversations, and I thank you again, as always, for listening, but more importantly, I thank you for opening your minds and leading with kindness in your own exploration of these issues. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited. Good. I'm so stoked to talk to you. Thank you for getting in touch. Absolutely. I had a bit of a rough week. I don't know if you saw, but I did an interview for Catalyst. No, I haven't read it. So I did an interview for Catalyst where I talked about, I guess, some of the things I had also mentioned to you. And they published that on the 15th of March. So I guess like a week ago. And I got amazing responses, and I also got mm, really mean emails. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah, it was was awful. I got called the N-word. I got, like, people saying I should be dead. Um, Yeah, it's it's been – so I was, like, kind of bottling that and deleting it, and then Saturday I just – went out on a bar crawl with some girlfriends and it wasn't like a intense bar crawl. It was like, we started at noon. We started with like pasta. We got glasses of wine. Like, and by the end I like was a little buzzed. And then I looked at the bartender and I'm like, just give me a gin and tonic, but don't put any tonic in it. <laughs> she did. <laughs> and, and my friends were like, Oh, here we go. And that kind of opened the floodgates and I took a cab home and I kind of fell into my husband's arms and I just like cried hysterically. All of that had been like 
building up. So I've had a rough way and it's calmed down. There were like only a handful of emails that I got and most of the response has been nice, but like that was my week this week. So, oh my gosh. I mean, I think about this a lot, putting out this podcast and putting out content and especially saying things that are um, alternative or new and really force people to, I don't know, lean into some discomfort or face some demons that they've been living with. And it's, it's a terrifying world that we live in right now with the access on the internet and the trolling and the ability to say things really anonymously and not have to suffer any repercussions for like really hurting somebody with your words. And it's terrifying to be saying things sometimes and really, you know, especially as I think you and I are people who are really aware of how words have power and meaning. And so, you know, we don't just like say shit to say shit and stir the pot. You know, it's there's a lot of intention behind it. It's well thought out and and we're trying really hard to be sensitive at the same time. And so when people flip their shit like that, I mean, you have to know that it has nothing to do with you or what you said. I I do. It's nice to hear. But like, yes, I I do know. Oh, man, that sounds rough. I'm really sorry you had to deal with that. Yeah. So it might be like, I don't know, racism light. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to like still stay woke, but also like, that was a lot. Yeah, well, take care of yourself. And <laughs> yeah, I totally hear you. That's got to be really hard. I have fortunately not had to deal with any um, trolling or emotional onslaught from listeners yet. But I imagine that the more I step into territory like race and stir that pot, the angrier the masses may get. One, I hope not. But yeah, I mean, you'll you'll get pushback. I don't know anything about Montana. Um, and so to me, it's just a big open expanse of sky. I've never been so, but I, my, my perception of it is like, maybe not the most liberal place in the world. (laughs) That would be accurate. Unfortunately. Um, I live in Bozeman, which is a pretty liberal bastion in the middle of a very red, enormous state that has more cows than people. And it's, um, it's a struggle, but it's also changing a lot. And, you know, with, when the women's march happened, there was um, a huge turnout in our capital in Montana, like 11,000 people, which when you consider, I think it was 11,000, when you consider that the population of the entire state is a million, like that was a substantial percentage of the populace that showed up. So there's definitely changes that are happening. But at the end of the day, it's a really white state, which is frustrating. And I'm hyper aware of my own bubble that I live in. And um, and it's frustrating because I care so much about all of these issues with racism and sexism and intersectionality. But it's like it's a hard thing for me to feel like I'm practicing what I'm preaching when I'm living in such a white community. Right. Yeah, I imagine. I mean, I live in a like the whitest neighborhood in Brooklyn, like literally the whitest neighborhood in Brooklyn. So I know like the, the isolation <laughs> even even if it's probably not as bad for me here. So tell me about how you found yourself working in the wedding industry. Um, I started my own podcast in 2009, and I, I would take a photo of everyone 
that came on my show, I would interview people sort of similar to the way you're interviewing me. And someone asked me what my rates were. And I said, I'll have to go home and let you know. And I went home and I made up rates really quickly for uh, portrait photography. And someone paid me $60 for that portrait. And then um, from there, I got other clients and then somebody wanted me to shoot their city hall wedding. And I had been thinking about going into the wedding industry before then. So I started doing city hall weddings to this day. Elopements are a huge part of my business. And then we got marriage equality in 2011 in New York state. And what that meant was people were coming from all over the country to come get married in New York City. And my business kind of exploded that year. And then in 2012, I started taking on larger weddings as well. So now I do big weddings and elopements in New York City and all around the world. Yeah, it's fun. Um, I always tell people I'm happy to create an elopement experience for you. If you're like, well, we really love cobblestones and we want ice cream sundaes, I sort of arrange a pattern for us to move around. So we have your ceremony in one spot, um, your portraits after in another, and then we'll end at ice cream sundaes that in a place where it's a very beautiful place to get an ice cream sundae so that I can get a few photos of you enjoying. And then I can actually just leave you to it so you can enjoy the rest of your day. And I like creating those experiences for people. It's really fun. Yeah, I love that. I think when you scrap the traditional wedding day checklist and you are already, when you've already made that decision to elope, it's sort of like this clean slate and you can do whatever you want. But it's also, I would imagine, probably a little bit overwhelming because without that timeline of the day, you're like, well, okay, so we're going to elope and then gosh, I don't know what's next. So I love that you offer that guidance and that helping hand in in shaping some photographic opportunities for people. Oh, yeah, it's so much fun. And sometimes people are coming from far away as Australia. So they don't know where the best places to go are. And they're like Times Square. And I'm like, I could do better. (laughs) Oh, man, I hate Times Square. (laughs) I know. it's, It's very overwhelming. I mean, it's kind of fun. But like, I don't know, it's just so cheesy. Uh, yeah it's not awesome and then there's like stadium seating to just like watch ads flashing across billboards I don't understand it at all it's so weird to me (laughs) yeah it's actually really cool at like 3 a.m when oh I bet like literally no tourists are there but the lights are still going then it becomes a surreal experience um but yeah I find it very overwhelming and I I tend to steer people away from it but every once in a while someone's like we really want to go to Times Square it means so much to us we live in the middle of nowhere and this is amazing and I'm like okay we'll do it we'll make it work that must be really hard to navigate as a photographer with that much going on it can be but so I I do like slightly more elevated elopements than like oh we want to do this super cheap the people who are coming to me are like people who really want an experience they're getting a suite at a hotel room they're not staying at like the holiday inn so they kind of know that I'm going to get it done and that usually involves me bringing an assistant and they're usually in what are very obviously wedding clothes. So when I walk in with an assistant and they they walk in with a wedding dress, 
people generally respect the space. It's interesting when you see a bride outside of her natural habitat, so to speak, <laughs> like downtown on the street. I remember once when I was in high school, I saw a bride running down the street in a full ball gown and um, there was like nobody I think there was someone running behind her but he was like a block behind and I was like whoa what am I witnessing right now (laughs) um and everybody it was like the crowds parted like as soon as you see a woman in a white ball gown everyone's like whoa 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 step off like do not get in her way (laughs) that's amazing so you're in like Times Square with a woman in a white dress and everyone's just not gonna fuck with you yeah yeah people are very very like oh, this is a wedding photo. I'm going to do my job and make it awesome by getting out of the way. Um, of course, they're taking photos over my shoulder, but I always tell my clients, you have to expect that a million people are going to have their cameras out and oh, taking absolutely. photos. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's, if you're going to, if you're going to be in public and getting photos taken in a space like that, you're, I mean, definitely going to be dealing with some cell phone paparazzi. I mean, especially in Times Square where there are a lot of tourists in in like the East Village, where it's like a lot of New Yorkers, we uh, have a sick pride about ignoring the most unusual things. So oh, like, yeah. I will sit next to someone who's like very clearly pissed themselves, and I will not notice. I will aggressively <laughs> not notice, and that's like a weird New Yorker thing that we all do, and it's pretty funny. Oh my god, I love that. I've totally noticed that in New York because I'm not like that. I. <laughs> if yeah. I see something wacky going on, I'm like, whoa, 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 what's going on? What's going on? Yeah. And everyone's just playing it cool around me like it's NBD. And I'm like, uh, that guy's got an accordion and I am into it and nobody gives a fuck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, if the mariachi band steps on the subway, all the tourists go, yes. And all of the New Yorkers go, oh, fuck. And put it in their headphones. It's <laughs> It's night and day. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. So in your first email to me, you mentioned if you Google beautiful wedding, you're just going to get a sea of white people. And it's something I'd never really done. And I did it and I was like, yeah, no, definitely. There is. I think I scrolled for several pages before I saw anybody of color. Yeah, it's uh, pretty bad. A white bride, a thin white heteronormative bride is still the norm. One thing I'm hoping to change in the next phase of my career is the centering of whiteness in the wedding industry, which I mean, we have the centering of whiteness in our culture. So that's a little bit more of an uphill battle. So when I started my career, people would email me saying, you will take a same-sex couple, right? To the point that I gave away a photo shoot to a same-sex couple because I wanted to be able to put them on my website. Now, I I think you'd be hard-pressed in New York City to find someone who would have a problem shooting a same-sex wedding. Um, I, I I don't know anyone personally in New York City, and I know a ton of photographers and a ton of wedding cake makers and wedding industry people. I don't know anybody who would ever think twice about taking on a same-sex couple as a client for their wedding um it wouldn't even it like we've we've reached the point at least here where that's not even a conversation anymore but and and I don't think that we would encounter that with race either but we do see a lot of people who have all white portfolios and the wedding industry is very segregated 
And I happen to be biracial. Um, I was raised by my mother in Connecticut. She has blonde hair and blue eyes. And my dad is black. I'm almost the same racial makeup as Barack Obama. And we, so I grew up seeing whiteness centered, but not relating to it because it didn't quite look like me. Um, but at the same time, I don't think most people pick up that I'm black either when they first look at me. So I, I kind of can see both worlds and I have a unique perspective of both worlds. And even when I look at my own portfolio, it skews heavily white because that's considered the norm, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm working on like that. That's my own weakness that I'm working on. And I'm working on creating that conversation with other people as well in centering people of color and white people, much like my own website now very much centers same sex couples. Yeah, it's a uh, it's not like people of color aren't getting married and it's not like they aren't experiencing these things and being photographed. It's that the wedding blogs, the publications, they just don't represent it at all. I wonder what the percentage is. It's got to be so small. And I recently stumbled across like a competition for like a a cover of a magazine and and all of the photos were beautiful. But not only were all of the couples white, but they all of the women were blonde and they were and everyone was thin and beautiful. It's like they may as well have been models that were hired specifically for these shoots. And I was happy to see somebody had commented um, like all of these photos are beautiful, but it would be really great to see some diversity in their smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> and it's one of those things where as soon as you um, become aware of it, you see it everywhere or the lack thereof, actually. We see it in stuff like that. And also um, big wedding photography competition recently posted all of its winners. And they... Like it was an it was another thing like that. Every single image was a thin white heteronormative couple, and then they were like, "Oh wait!" Right at the back, one super adorable thin white gay male couple, and <laughs> I was like, "Ah, oh, y'all tried real hard." Yeah, you were like, "Oh look, a smidgen of progress." <laughs> right, and they they both looked like Ken. I mean, it was a great photo. They all were amazing, beautiful photos. But again, it was just like centering whiteness and centering heteronormativity and, you know, having like one really fun um, gay gay couple is kind of a nod, but it really felt it really felt like not enough. Yeah, it feels obligatory at that point. Like it's not like it's a it's a calculated decision that they're making because they're trying to appear inclusive without actually doing the work. Right. And another example was really big wedding blog where they had an article, a hundred hairstyles for every girl on her wedding Mm. day. So I clicked through all 100 of them. 99 girls were thin, white, heteronormative, like dressed like, you know, in feminine attire. Um, One might have been Asian, but her face was down so she just had brown hair and you couldn't see like if she was Asian or not but she might have just been light-skinned white and 
um, I was like, wow, that leaves out a lot of girls, you know? All right. Like you've left out black girls. You've left out brown girls. You've left out butch girls. You've left out trans girls. You've left out so many girls, Uh, you know? Yeah. Well, no. And as soon as you said a hundred hairstyles, I knew exactly where that was going. I was like, fuck. You had mentioned something about the difference in the way that black people and white people get married. And I'm wondering what you mean by that, like what you've experienced in those differences. I've been talking to a lot of other photographers who do have a slightly more racially diverse client base than I do currently. Um, As I'm very specifically seeking to market to a black bride and a black groom and that like how I need to speak to that culture because it is a culture. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I found out in my research is that if you look at the way a lot of black people get married, they don't idolize the Mason jar aesthetic, which, you know, we in the wedding industry like to say we're sick of, but the reason Mason jars got so popular is because they were fun and inexpensive And they became very popular with white people getting married, but a black person wants to present um, a little more wealth and refinement, whereas Mm. white people are, are, are already higher in culture because we've centered them in our culture. So they can kind of afford to be like, oh, shucks, we have this glass and it's a mason jar, whereas... Um, a lot of I I don't know if I'm saying that well I think I know what you're saying yeah like when you are afforded more privilege and a higher cultural standing like being shabby chic is endearing rather than defining you said that (laughs) that I could have that was more eloquent I just need you to follow me for the rest of my life explaining (laughs) what I mean in a nicer more eloquent way because that is so accurate yes that's exactly what I'm saying um interesting or a lot of black couples like to get married indoors um I know for my own wedding I did end up having a wedding outside but I felt strange about it um and nobody else knew what I meant until I talked to a black friend and she was like oh I get it I didn't want to get married outdoors either um because getting married indoors kind of signifies you didn't have to get married outdoors. You got married in this beautiful building. Um, But my husband and I are atheists. So like we weren't going to get married in a church. Um, So it's, it's things like that. And I struggled with having my wedding ceremony outside before I kind of said, all right, that's fine. That's so interesting. It's not something that I would have... Because I've definitely observed those differences that you're talking about, but I couldn't put my finger on it like what is it about these two cultures that that does feel so different because it's the same celebration it's the same ceremony it's the same you know threshold and move into this next phase of your life and and love is love as far as I'm concerned but it does feel very different in the way that we celebrate them and I think you're right to point out that it has a lot to do with just this inherent um cultural perspective that we've created with privilege right and I I I don't think that thought is fully formed at least on my end quite yet because 
you know, you also do have um, a culture of like New Jersey brides who get married in the, sorry, I hate when people say brides and I'm doing it right now because I'm thinking about other things. New Jersey couples who get married in like the, the New Jersey wedding hall is actually a, a pretty big wedding market. And that is also all indoors. And those people are white people. So I don't know. My whole theory might be out the window, but um, this is slowly what I'm piecing together. And I, and I think like the biggest thing is that the thing that I've gotten asked a lot is, do you know how to handle my skin tone? Um, and I do. Or, or what about an interracial skin tone? Which, of course, I, I am pretty well versed in handling but that that is a concern. So I also, one of the things that I've, I've been encouraging other wedding vendors to do is to seek out a diverse portfolio and make sure that you show people that you can photograph darker skin. Um, and this is also very true for makeup artists. Um, and I think probably that is the most important thing mm-hmm. to show. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. You also mentioned that you were raised in a really Christian sort of cult-like community. And um, I'm curious about your own journey into racial awareness and dealing with um, like the homophobic prejudice that accompanied that upbringing. Yeah. um, So it was the Assemblies of God. And I grew up knowing that gay people were wrong and we we didn't talk about race that much but looking back I realize now it was just another instance of whiteness being centered um we didn't talk about race because we didn't have to and I was um a little bit of an odd duck nobody nobody's parents had a problem with me playing with them or anything like that but I also wasn't encouraged to embrace my black side because I was supposed to embrace my Christian side. And of course the Christian brand that I grew up in was the white upper middle class, very culty Christian experience. Um, We went to church four times a week. We spoke in tongues. It was really, um, it was a lot. And uh, they grabbed my friend and tried to pray the gay out of him. Uh, which we laugh about today. He's my oldest friend now because I met him when he was thir- when I was 13. And my journey out of it was that I never really felt like I was a part of it. I never fully embraced it. I remember asking my parents when I was about eight years old, how do we know that we're right if the Muslims think that they're right? And my mom would say, well, because it says so in the Bible. And I would say, but they have a holy book too. I didn't know the word for Koran at the time. I said, they have a holy book too. Their holy book says that they're right. And I I just got in trouble for even questioning. So I remember having that thought process very early on, but it wasn't until I was much older looking back that I began to understand my upbringing was wrong. I always had figured and it had always been told, you'll understand when you're older. And the truth of the matter was that I didn't understand when I got older. I understood that everything I had been raised with was incorrect when I got older. That was a bit of a shock. (laughs) 
I'm sure. Yeah, it was hard. On top of that, like it was, um, I I grew up in a very abusive household. So I associated the Christianity I grew up in with the abuse I was experiencing. And um, one of my oldest friends is a very strong Christian. She's married to a pastor. And we talk about this sometimes where she goes, you know, it, like it, it hurts me that something I hold dear is something that you associate with so much pain, you know? And, and I respect her, her perspective on that a lot because it, it hurts me because I do have other Christian friends too, who find so much comfort in their faith that I'm just not able to have. My, my moment of freedom was when I realized I was an atheist. That's when I got peace. But that means that I don't have the comfort of knowing that I will see my loved ones who are dead when I die myself. You know, I imagine it must be a beautiful way to walk through the world. I just don't have that. Yeah, that level of certainty. I, I'm spiritual, but it's a pretty ambiguous spirituality. It's very undefined and I'm constantly evolving. But, but I don't have any part of me that's certain about any of it. And I think if there's one thing that I am jealous of when it comes to people who have that kind of faith, it is that certainty and just that peace of mind. But then you have to consider also that there's like, there's this peace of mind in this one arena, but then also um, sort of the opposite end of the spectrum, which is that your entire life here on this planet is consumed with worrying about whether or not you're going to make it into this place at when you die. And that just seems like such a really horrible way to live. I, can't, I mean, yeah. I think there's so many ways to um, have faith and believe in something that is meaningful to you. And I definitely, if somebody believes in a Christian God, it's not for me to say if that's right or wrong, but it feels like a way um, like a waste of this human existence to be constantly consumed with the afterlife. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of with you there. And we're ethical humanists in my house. So we, we actually put in our wedding vows um, that we will always have an ethical humanist household. And what that means for me is that like I'm concerned with making the world a better place for my fellow human being. And, um, I, I, that's the world, the lens through which I see the world. And that's brought me probably more structure and comfort to my thought processes and decisions that I make more than anything else. I understand that totally. I feel like that's a wonderful mission statement. And I think that at the core of Christianity, a lot of that is there. You know, there's a reason why you have these friends that are Christians who you really respect and who explore their faith in really healthy and wonderful ways. And I don't think that, I don't think it all needs to be like <laughs> doom and gloom and like smiting people and stuff, because I think a lot of what the Bible preaches is kindness and empathy and compassion, but then, you know, with a healthy dose of like retribution and <laughs> punishment <laughs> and, um, you know, when it, but when it comes to the empathy and the compassion piece, like I'm all there. I totally get it 100%. Right. And I feel like there's a lot of, um, discontinuity between those two things. They don't seem, they don't really line up for me. I don't understand how they can make it into the same teachings. People who don't question their own religion, 
I feel like that always really surprises me. I'm just so full of questions for like why I do all of the things that I do and why I believe these things that I believe. I just can't seem to turn off the questions, but yeah, <laughs> some people absolutely. just find it really simple. Oh yeah. I, I question everything. Yeah. I think like there are a lot of religions where like the goodness makes sense to me, but like all the other stuff, I'm like, what are you guys doing? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. We're equally horrified over, you know, child trafficking. So I I always like to say when people really want to get into it with me, you know, like we're equally horrified by the same things. Maybe we should work on solving those, you know? Yeah, totally. Let's stop arguing about all of these red herrings and like find the common ground and conquer that shit. Right. And like, I, I don't, I also think like it would take a huge ego to say, well, like, what is it? Like 15% of the world's population is an atheist. Um, and if I'm in that 15% and I'm looking at 85%, I don't know what the numbers are, but I think that's pretty close. Um, how much of an ego am I going to have to say, Oh, 85% of people are wrong and I'm right. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's it's just not a question that's very important to me. Like, is there a God? It, like, it's, it's not the most important question to me. So I try not to be angry atheist. And I, like, if I encounter the guy in a bar who's like, Christians suck, I'm an atheist, and anyone who believes is a moron. Like, I just, like, walk away from those people because I can't, I can't fuck with you on that level. If that's where you are, I agree like with you that there isn't a god but that's where our agreement ends <laughs> yeah and just don't engage right yeah anybody who's screaming publicly i think it's a general rule of thumb that you should not be engaging in conversation and that goes right back to being a new yorker and aggressively ignoring all of the shit show that could be new york city yeah it's just self-preservation at that point honestly <laughs> Um, Well, okay. I have two questions for you about existing as an atheist in this space. So the first question is, how did transitioning out of that religion affect your relationship with your family? So I actually don't speak to my mother anymore. And that was a decision I made based on the abuse and not the religion thing. I do speak to her mother and am quite close to her mother as a matter of fact. And grandma is very devout. And she kind of takes out, well, you believe what you believe and I'll believe what I believe. And we have lots to talk about. So in that respect, I'm very in tune with her. You know, like we don't need to talk about if God exists or not. Um, I don't think I will ever convince her, nor do I have any interest in convincing her. Um, so that's been fine. And I just don't talk to my mother or my stepfather who raised me or their family who were the gay hating, Muslim hating, Trump voting, angry Republican voters. They're not they're not a part of my life anymore because I, I can't like you can believe fundamentally different than I am. And if your political views and my political views are that we're having an argument on tax policy, like fine, you know, totally fine. But if your, if your political views and your religious views are um, Muslims should be stoned to death for practicing their religion, like, or something horrible like that, I like, I can't, you know? 
Yeah, when hate becomes part of the cocktail, that's when I check out. Yeah, you know, those things have been said, like, in family conversations, things like, you know, gay people should be tried for participating in homosexuality, stuff like that. Like, that's how extreme they were, so. Wow. Yeah, so I just don't talk to them anymore, because, like, I I can't. <laughs> Fair enough, man. What about your dad, your biological father? So he was MIA for a large part of my life, and we just kind of started hanging out more recently. Um, and in fact, uh, two days ago, I spent the entire day with him for the first time since I was 10 years old. We We had been, he had been in my life up until I was 10, and then we we like just didn't speak and now we kind of have a like a okay well let's see if we can like have a relationship now sort of situation wow that's a big step yeah he's he's um a christian but way less extreme than you know my family of origin which is my mom and my stepfather and he you know he says grace He doesn't go to church because he doesn't like the organized religion part of it. And he just is kind of quiet. His uh, long-term partner is Catholic, and they just kind of live their lives respectfully and quietly. And so that's been nice to kind of get to, like, know him as an adult. Yeah, definitely. I didn't grow up with my dad either. He was, like, in and out and... I spent um, a summer living with him, gosh, like seven years ago. Um, And it was the first time I'd really lived with him ever and getting to know him as an adult. It was it was very unique. It was very different. It's a different it's a different father daughter relationship by far. Yes, for sure. You get to rewrite the rules as an adult. Yeah, he um, we had a moment, though, where so he's really into the casinos. I grew up in Connecticut and they um, that means that, like, you can go to the casino because they're open 24 seven. And we got to the casino, which is an hour drive from the train station. And he like I went to the bathroom when we got there. And when I came out, he handed me two hundred dollars to gamble with. And it was so funny because no one had ever handed me money in my entire life. Wow. Uh, and I was like, oh, thank you. And I, I'm 35 years old. I just turned 35. Like, I don't need anyone to hand me anything. And I like, it was so out of the blue, but he seemed so happy to do it. And I was like, all right, like, I'm going to gamble and play penny slot machines, which is what we did for like several hours, you know, and it was like, it was this really sweet moment that I just never experienced. Yeah, understandably. That's good. (laughs) It's not like a, (laughs) every father and daughter has experienced that moment, right? He hands you $200, you do slot machines. (laughs) It's totally normal. (laughs) It was like, it was totally bizarre. And yet, like, we had the best time. And like, he pretended to be mad at me because I won and he lost. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I love that. (laughs) um okay so then my other question was as an atheist have you had to field questions from couples who were trying to find vendors who were either aligned with them when it came to their faith or they were just concerned about just making sure that (laughs) that that wasn't going to be an issue um no no one has ever asked about it negatively 
they they've commented on it positively either because they too are ethical humanists or because they think it's really cool that I put that out there and it's kind of unusual I am an atheist but I don't like self-describing myself as that because that's like saying I don't drink beer like if someone asks me what I want to drink I won't ever say I don't drink beer they'd be like well no what what do you want to drink I say oh well I don't drink red wine either okay no 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 what do you want to drink you know and and to me saying oh I'm an atheist is this is like saying okay I don't do this I mean even the word atheist means against a god yeah. uh, so I like to say what I am which is an ethical human. I like that. And that feels more like um, I'm talking about what I am. I don't go up to you and say, I don't collect stamps. Hi, I'm Amber. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I never really thought of it that way, but I think that that's smart. I think oftentimes when you define what you want, if you do it clearly and concisely and you're really communicative, it's pretty obvious what you don't want. So I feel like it's the same principle, right? Tell people what you are. And, like, they can piece together what you're not. Yeah, absolutely. I also um, make it a point to fill my website with dog whistles. So my opening line is, love is love, which, of course, Barack Obama said, and which Lin-Manuel Miranda beautifully put into a poem when he accepted his Emmy, I believe it was. And people who see that get it, you know? Um, there's a note on my elopements page saying I don't take photos of couples in the horse and carriage rides that are so famous because I don't believe in them. That's kind of a liberal bleeding heart position to take. And people have commented that they've hired me because of it. So I really want people to focus on what I am. Yeah. And I sprinkle little stuff like that all throughout my website just so you can get a sense of who I am. Totally. I've done something pretty similar on my website because what I do is pretty unique. I think not just to the area, but kind of across the board unique for a cake baker. I'm very flavor forward and um, I have a pretty, I don't know, avant-garde design aesthetic. And I don't love using fondant and gum paste. And um, I did like this whole kind of rebranding effort at one point because I felt like I wasn't doing a good job of putting that filter up before people even reached out to me in the first place. And I did this whole rebranding effort and settled on um, Rebel Brides as something that I wanted to put in there and like flavor forward and just kind of creating my own vocabulary to describe what I do. And I it was almost immediate, like as soon as I put it out there, I felt like the inquiries that I was receiving were different overnight. It was amazing. And I, I do notice that like you, like even your name is a little bit cheeky. You're whipped. And yep. I'm like, ooh, sexy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel like from the get-go, like there's a sense of humor about it. And the wedding industry, I think, is on the whole pretty unapproachable. Like it feels... um historically uptight but then even now I think it's significantly less uptight on the surface but it's so shiny and glossy and intimidating because everything is so perfect 
that I think that if I was getting married, I would feel really uncomfortable. I would be like, oh man, I'm going to get mustard stains all over my wedding dress. Like I can't be talking to these people. Like they're going to think I'm a, I'm a joke and I'm a mess. And I really wanted to try to kind of talk to that other in people and be like, I'm also other, I'm weird and I'm different and I'm whipped. And like, there's a, there's a sense of humor about this thing that we're embarking on. Like, let's just not take it all so seriously. Right. Yeah. Seth Godin talks about this in his book, A Purple Cow, which is a classic marketing book. And I think it should be required reading for anyone who ever wants to start a business. Um, And he talks about how you know if you're driving like he was driving down the road in switzerland and he stops he goes oh my gosh look there's a cow and his whole family's like oh the beautiful cow it's a beautiful brown cow they stop they take pictures they're fawning over this cow then they drive a little while down the way and they're like there's another one it's so beautiful and then they keep going and eventually after 20 minutes they realize the whole road is full of brown cows they just happened to see that one brown cow and they were really excited about it and they were like <laughs> okay but if you saw a purple cow then you'd start fawning over it and he said and that's the way it is in business is like you know you just showing up might have been enough 10 years ago in your industry, but now you have to be purple cow. You can't just be there standing on the side of the road like everyone else because <laughs> there's a lot of you. You need to be a purple cow. Um, totally. But then that opens up like its own Pandora's box of anxiety too because trying to be different and set yourself apart can be such a downward spiral into like being disingenuine and inauthentic because then you're just like trying to be like alternative and the next big or like it's a really difficult thing right now with um, social media and just being able to so readily compare yourself to everyone all the time and when trends can take shape so quickly and when something that is alternative or unique or you know, the next big thing can go viral overnight. It's like the the heat is on to be the next purple cow. Absolutely. And the other half of that is you also need to be aggressively yourself. Uh, Absolutely. And to, to that end, I learned this from Justin and Mary, who are wedding photographers in Connecticut. And they recently like really put a high end polish on their branding and they're unapologetically preppy. They're unapologetically New England. They're unapologetically in love with dramatic photos. They say, if you don't like black and white photos, you know, we take a lot of them, they speak to us. And if you don't like it, here's another photographer for you to pursue. So their couples tend to be very beautiful, um, New England, you either love it or you hate it right away. And I think that's really important. I think having a strong sense of self and presenting that to the people who are going to connect with you is vital in our industry, especially as it gets more and more crowded. I think that you do a really good job of that. There are people who are going to hear mustard stains on your dress and be like, oh my goodness. But then there's going to be that other person who's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get mustard stains on my dress. <laughs> and, and I now feel like I can see myself reflected in you because you make this funky artistic product that I've never seen. 
And I think that you do a really good job of being very aggressively, authentically yourself. And that in turn means that if I am that way, or I'm just into it, maybe I'm not as, I don't want to say you're extreme, but like you do have a very strong aesthetic and I'm, I just want a piece of that for myself and for my wedding day. Cause that's going to bring me joy. You will get amazing clients who will trust you, who will let you do whatever it is that you want, who will trust you when you say, you know what, that's not going to work. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Uh, oh, good. Yeah, like absolutely. And I, I was really excited when I saw your website because I think that you do it well. And it's something I'm working on too. Um, and I think it it the, the, flip, the other side of that is that one, you do have Instagram so you can follow a million of your competitors um, and that can be very disheartening and very difficult to find your own voice. It can make it feel very scary to do something that most people aren't doing. And also it can be very overwhelming. I know that I've been in business shooting weddings full time since about 2011. And I'm just finding my voice now. Like I'm really honing in my voice. It's been, it's a, it's a struggle. It's a struggle to know who you are, which is, you wouldn't have thought so, but. Well, man, that's so, it's so human though, right? It's a struggle to know who you are as a human being and like, why should your business be any different? I think there's this really um, black and white perception of branding in a business. And I know that Liz mentioned this when I spoke with her that, you know, it's very anti-branding advice to evolve and reinvent the wheel as you go and to rebrand in subtle ways and not in a complete overhaul. But I think it's so necessary to, check in with your business and yourself as you're moving along and make adjustments where necessary instead of feeling like, well, I didn't ace it right out of the gate, so now I'm screwed. And you can hone. Like, I know that Justin and Mary's clients um, will never be my clients. And I, I love looking at their photos, but it wasn't what I would choose for myself. So you can also appreciate other people without embracing it for yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to remember that, like, even if I admire their photography and I've learned techniques and stuff from them, I also don't want to replicate them. And that, that, that can be hard when I like see someone doing really well to be like, oh, I should just do that. But <laughs> you, you shouldn't do that. You know, you should be, you should do you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we all are richer for that variety. There's enough business to go around. There's enough diversity. There's enough people out there with alternating viewpoints and perceptions and ways of wanting to celebrate this thing that brings us all together under one umbrella. I don't think that, you know, what what's your jam may not be my jam, but I'm stoked it's your jam, right? Yeah, absolutely. My problem is is that I live in a, I live in Montana. <laughs> and so a lot of what I do is just really trying to open up people's minds a little bit to what is possible. I think if I lived in a place like New York City, I would probably have a much easier time um, accessing that ideal client base. This is, this is a wedding destination place, but a lot of people come here to have a very specific type of wedding. And 
a lot of my clients that come here are people who, you know, are from New York. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's been a struggle for me is being um being the weird fish in <laughs> in the pond. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know if I disagree with you, but I kind of might um only because you might have an easier time finding the artistic weirdos that are in love with your work and what you do. But there are also more artistic weirdos to compete with that are making really unusual things. And and that is the New York City struggle is that there are a lot of clients here, but there are also a lot of vendors here. And I, I have that conversation with cake makers. I've had this conversation with florists. I've had this conversation with officiants. I mean, you you get to be a weird fish in, in, and you're probably the only weird fish around. And, and I bet when people find you, they're like, oh, where have you been, weird fish? I love you. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I'm not swimming in a pond full of weird fish, <laughs> a homogenous pond of weirdos. <laughs> yeah, no, I've definitely thought about this ever since I started my business. It's always I get that feedback a lot from people that are like, why do you why are you doing this here? Like, is there enough people to support your business if this is your niche? And there is and there isn't. I think, it, like, again, it's it's marketing and, you know, getting out there in the right ways. But but my answer is is yeah is is essentially that like it's fulfilling maybe in some respect to be adding that necessary weirdness to a place like this than it is to move somewhere where that weirdness is commonplace and right, yeah. Uh, yeah and then be um competing for lack of a better word against all of those other weirdos <laughs> oh yeah i feel like if i had either started 10 years ago or moved to a more remote place, I'd be one of the best wedding photographers in in a hundred mile radius, you know? But like in New York, my like really, really good photography is almost average, you know? The recipe for success is so weird right now because it just feels like luck plays such an enormous role in... Um, in going viral in social media, because that's really where things are, where success is being made. I noticed that um, it it my success hasn't been correlated to that. It's been it's been uh, excellent customer service, which is I will go ahead and say I think I'm I deliver some of the best customer service for wedding photographers in New York City, hands down. And and I, I realized like that should be my purple cow because I'm a really good photographer, technically speaking, and I always seek to educate myself. I am the best at customer service. And that just stems from me having the same entrepreneurial soul that you do, where I started my first business when I was younger. Uh, I think I was like 16 when I started wow. organization. <laughs> <laughs> I would go in and organize your store counters. That is who I am at my bones. So delivering excellent customer service, um, under promising and over over delivering, you know, telling my clients, oh, yeah, I'll have your f- photos in six weeks and then surprising them 10 days after their wedding with photos, you know, stuff like that. That's been 
where I shine and and how I've chosen to differentiate myself. What you're talking about in terms of defining your success by that is really smart too. I I don't want to come across as saying like that I think you're only successful if you have, you know, 135,000 followers. I think it's more like what you're saying in terms of like you are an incredible photographer and you're in a sea of incredible photographers. So like, yeah, how do you stand out and how do you define that success when um, when culture would have us believe that that success is defined by those likes and those followers? And I think that that's really smart to hone in on what does set you apart and then just totally slay at that. Right. Absolutely. That is my constant goal um, and what I encourage a lot of people to do that and make connections with other people who can get you work along those lines. Mine would be like quality over quantity always, which is so easy to say and much harder to talk myself through sometimes when I'm like, why don't I have more clients or why don't I have more followers or whatever it is? You know, I don't have more, but I would always rather have less at a higher quality and be able to put the attention to detail into the final product that 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 affords me. Yeah, absolutely. And I I also do believe in producing high quality work. When I do elopements, I um I produce elopements like they are full size weddings. Um, I bring an assistant. I bring all my normal gear. I show up at your hotel room and take photos of your shoes and your bouquet just like a normal wedding. And that's, that's actually gotten me a uh, really interesting clients who are like, Oh yeah. Like everyone else just meets in the park. You're going to come to my hotel room and take photos of me actually putting on my little elopement dress that I got from ASOS or whatever, you know? So yeah. Yeah. It's like adding the right dose of pomp and circumstance to an event that they've taken the majority of that out of, which I really like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love throwing it right back in. I'm like, you're getting a bouquet, right? <laughs> oh, I didn't know I could. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I have I have connections. I even have someone who does like discounted bouquets for just my clients. Like, um, and, and it's it's really fun. It, it, it makes it so much more beautiful, you know, to like put in a tiny bit of fuss and sparkle. <laughs> my other favorite part about you know, these business models that we're talking about and this, what I continue to call like new wave of vendors is the collaboration aspect of it and that camaraderie. And, um, you know, that you have that florist, that you have that person on lock and that you're like excited to work with them. And, oh yeah, I, um, it's community over competition, which a lot of people talk about. I think that's so powerful. I, I think it's more powerful than, trying to make sure someone else isn't successful because that's really how I grew my business is there's an amazing elopement photographer in New York City named Katie Jane and when I was first starting out I forget how we became friends um but you know she's a very dear person to me and she gave me a lot of referrals and she had no ego about it and I'm eternally grateful to her um, and I've in turn helped other people by giving them referrals. So it's been it's been a really wonderful journey upward with the camaraderie of other photographers who I think maybe 15 years ago I would have been encouraged to view as competition. Yeah, I went to a film screening yesterday for um, a documentary about an ultra marathon runner 
named Nikki Kimball, who lives here in Bozeman. It's actually on Netflix. You should watch it. It's pretty incredible. But it's called Finding Finding Traction. And then she and the director were answering questions after the screening, which was really cool. And, you know, so she races, right? Like her her life is about competition. But she had some really wonderful things to say about it. The whole movie is about her trying to beat the women's and the men's record for running the long trail in the Appalachian Mountains. And at one point, she's basically like, you know, it's obvious that she's not going to beat the men's and it's like a huge bummer for her. But she says something about her measure of success in that moment is knowing that hopefully she's going to be inspiring some young girl to beat her record and like passing that torch. It was amazing. It felt so good to hear because even for somebody whose life is steeped in competition, I think to be able to divorce your ego of the work that you're doing like that and to recognize that you're not the end all be all and you never could be. And that there's always going to be somebody who comes in after you. There's always going to be the new hotness, the next person to pass that torch on to. And rather than, you know, finding discomfort in that concept and um, trying really hard to make as much of an impact as you can for your own self gain, I think approaching it as like paving the way for that next groundbreaking vanguard is I just I thought it was so beautiful and touching and it really resonated with me that's awesome okay so now it's on my Pinterest board of movies to watch yeah it's really good I mean I'm not a runner at all so I don't typically gravitate towards that sort of thing watching documentaries about sports and stuff but it is so inspiring and the movie is about like gender equality and Afterwards, we were talking about, well, I asked, so, you know, everyone's asking questions and I asked her a question about, obviously, women in sports has changed so much even in her lifetime. And I asked her, like, if there was one thing that she would like to see change, you know, in the lifetime that she has left in that field, what would it be? And she you know, brought up the pay, the pay gap in terms of sponsorship and said something about... Um, like a man that she knows who has, you know, way less on his um, CV than she does, way less accomplishment under his belt, who she found out, you know, she was making a 12th of what he was making in sponsorship. Oh, my gosh. And he has a 12th of the experience that she has. And I was floored. I mean, I it's like, <laughs> you you know this. Like, we all know that the pay gap exists. Right. We all know these things in theory, and some of us experience them in real ways. But to hear th- that number from her, I was just like, what the actual fuck? Yes. And uh, I do notice that um, male wedding photographers get paid a little more than I do. Interesting. Like, and and I can set my own prices. But there's almost a gap in the advice that men and women get when they ask for pricing help in Facebook groups and stuff. Um, It's a struggle. That's a really interesting thing to note. So there's a pay gap nationwide um, and, you know, sexism and gender issues, um, gender equality is pervasive and systemic. But the wedding industry to me is a really interesting Um, industry to look at because it is I think predominantly run by and for women oh yeah that's changing but the the men in there are just cleaning up a little bit more at least that that's my perspective um I'm, I'm trying to glean inspiration from my guy friends who are photographers who are like uh 
charge more. Or even at a networking event, my buddy John Lemon, who is another elopement photographer, kind of looked at my prices and goes, these right here, they need to go up. You need to be charging more for this right here. And I was like, all right, fuck it. I'm going to like go into this with the bravado of a man. And I did. And he was <laughs> right. I was undervaluing um, a certain album that I offer uh, by by the wrong percentage. And he was like, just just do it. Just do it. It's like, okay. It's interesting to think about an industry where that's run by predominantly women who are running their own businesses. It's small business owners, right? So we're setting those prices. And now even in an industry where we're calling those shots, we're still not getting paid as much as our male counterparts. And and it's not because anybody's giving us the short end of the stick. It's because we're giving ourselves the short end of the stick because that's the only end of the stick that we n- that we're familiar with. Right. Well, I'm I'm just gonna go grab someone else's stick. Oh wait, that came out really bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh my I think it came out perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I was really inspired when he said it. He just looked at me and was like, change your prices. And I'm like, oh, right, I can. It's true, though. It's it's hard to channel the mill um, bravado. <laughs> yeah. It feels very uncomfortable. I was reading this really incredible article. I wish I could remember what it was from, but it was a transgendered man, so used to be a woman who had transitioned into a man and was now experiencing how to channel that privilege that they had never experienced before because like the one part of the article that really stands out to me was ordering at a restaurant and as a woman you would be like um excuse me if you have a minute I could really use another glass of water thank you whereas (laughs) a man's just like I need another glass of water and then they just get it right and and so he was trying to figure out how to make those adjustments because when he apologized before he'd done anything wrong or said thank you unnecessarily or was like too kind and empathetic and compassionate people didn't know how to read him they were like what are you like what <laughs> like super confused and i mean it's just not something obviously um being transgendered is inherently complicated but that's a piece of it that i hadn't really considered being so difficult to overcome on an internal level that's true and i i've struggled with that um i'm i'm just about the most feminine person that i've i've ever met um and i had to make a conscious effort to stop saying oh i'm sorry or demurring when i want something but there are people who call me abrasive now um (laughs) you know yeah no i know it's like when you when you ask for what you deserve when you advocate for yourself, you're abrasive and you're a bitch and you're aggressive. Right. It's it's hard to toe that line. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting. Um, I decided that I should be president of our co-op in New York City. If you buy an apartment, you don't actually buy your apartment because, of course, the walls and roof are stuck to somebody else's walls and roof. So, like you actually buy a share in a corporation. So I will tell you, I bought an apartment. What I actually did was I bought a share in a corporation that allows me to live in a section of a building. So I am president of my co-op. I said, you know, no one else seems to want to do this. I live here in the building. So I'm on the ground all the time and I work from home. I would love to serve in this role. No one had a problem with it. Um, The man who owned the apartment next to mine, who doesn't live in the building, 
always questions um, every decision that I make. He says, I spend too much money on contractors um, that I'm not doing things in the right order. Everyone else in the building agrees with me. The times that they don't, they are very vocal in telling me. And I'm very vocal in saying, all right, I was wrong. You guys can do what you want. Um, but this one man, he's like, he's just angry all the time. And I think what he doesn't realize is that I'm hiring contractors who look me in the eye and speak to me respectfully. Don't talk down to me. Don't call me a sweetheart. <laughs> and, and a lot of those guys are younger and a lot of those guys that I've been hiring to do contracting work around our apartment building are people who charge a little bit more and I'm paying for excellent customer service and he doesn't have that frame of reference. So he yells at me a lot and he calls me sweetheart when he yells at me a lot. And Oh my God. And like, I kind of chuckle and my husband and I were just talking about it this morning. He said, I don't know how you aren't so angry. And I'm like, I, I, I don't care what he thinks about me on a personal level. I want to get our apartment building into a beautiful shape. You know, I, I want to have things repaired in a timely manner so he can yell at me all he wants. And my husband goes, I guess you're probably also used to dealing with this a little more than I am. And I'm like, oh, yeah, like, for sure. <laughs> Right. Because that anger that he's talking about, like not anger in general, but that anger is like that's a that's the anger of privilege. If you've always had things easy or you haven't had to pay a premium to be treated like a human being, then you would be angry when you came up against the situation. But it's like when you deal with that kind of shit your whole life and you deal with being treated like an idiot and being called sweetheart by year 35 you're like fuck it <laughs> that is the best part about being in my 30s fuck it <laughs> well i think that's a wonderful note to end this delightful conversation on okay it was so good to talk to you i didn't realize we had been talking for an hour and a half but i just looked at my timer <laughs> i know that's how it happens the avowed podcast is like a black hole of delightful conversation <laughs> You come out on the other side and you've aged five years. I don't know how it happens. <laughs> well, this has been so wonderful talking to you. I am so glad that we were able to connect and that Catalyst put you in touch with me. And I am I look forward to talking to you again. I feel like this isn't the last that you're going to hear from me. It better not be because I love talking to you too. Yeah, this was amazing. Thank you. Oh, hey, I just thought I'd check in and let you know that I have an accompanying blog post waiting for you over at jasminerlily.com with photographs, further ruminations on the topics introduced in this episode, and links to all of the people Amber mentioned in our conversation. Thank you again for listening, and please do me a favor, share this podcast with your friends on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever you are getting your social media fix these days. When it comes to your friends, your word is better than mine, so... I know they'll trust your recommendation when you tell them how totally badass the Avowed Podcast is. Have a lovely week. Enjoy the seasonal change and please take care of yourself.